Hello, robots, and welcome to this bi-weeks episode of Remedial Studies. My name is Hannah, and I am joined today by my lovely co-host, Rachel. We are going to be talking about Neil Gaiman's American Gods of recent Amazon television fame. But this is this is really, I think, a modern classic that wrangles with a lot of our, our favorite questions about the nature of godhood, the nature of belief, and even the nature of America, the country in which we both live. So, And we live in the Midwest, where a lot of mm-hmm. this book takes place. But sometimes I feel like Ohio isn't the proper... Midwest. Ohio's a weird in-between place. We're not, like, quite eastern seaboard, and we're not quite Midwest. Yeah, I guess it depends on what part of the state you're in, because I feel like there are parts of the middle of Ohio that are, like, real, real Midwest. Mm-hmm. And then you get down to the southeastern part of the state, where I'm from originally, and you get into the weird... Appalachian stuff and then like mm-hmm. Cleveland is sort of eastern seaboard because you get all the traffic in from the eastern seaboard on the lakes and the canal systems like historically so I feel like it's a weird just because of the river and the lakes and also being so close to Appalachia it's like a weird it's a weird crossroads of a state yeah that's why it's cursed yeah, for that's why we have um, the most astronauts of any state, because everybody wants to leave. We gotta go. <laughs> oh, man. Speaking of, of crossroads and all that stuff, should I attempt to give a summary of, the, of this book? Yeah, let's, we'll, we'll try to keep it general and just assume that you've read it. So American Gods is a weird mix of genres. It's a bit fantasy. It's a bit road trip. Um, but it all sort of focuses on our protagonist, whose name is Shadow Moon. And at the beginning of the book, he is in prison um, for, I believe, assault and battery. And is anxiously awaiting his release date so he can go home to Eagle Point, Indiana or Illinois, one of the I-states, and um, see his wife, Laura, again. It is revealed early on in the book that Laura, unfortunately, literal days before he was supposed to be released, passed away in a car accident, and Shadow is released to go home early. There follows a very long and horrifying, for anybody who has ever ridden in an airplane in America, description (laughs) of what airports are like. And it is accurate and terrible. But on the last airplane, he meets a man named Mr. Wednesday, who only gives him that name because that is the day of the week. And he says, it's my day. And he knows all this stuff about Shadow and he knows all this stuff about um, his wife, Laura. But Shadow initially doesn't accept this job offer that he submits to him because he's convinced that he has a job waiting for him at home. He gets home. That's not the case. His wife is indeed dead. His best friend, who she was sleeping with, is dead. And his life in this town that he thought he was coming back to has just evaporated. He accepts the job offer Mr. Wednesday gives him, where he's essentially acting as a bit of a bodyguard. He's kind of muscle, all that stuff. Um, But before he leaves Equal Point, he gives coin that he 
he was very drunk at the time, so he doesn't quite remember if he won it in this fight he had with this dude named Mad Sweeney, or if he stole it because they're doing all these coin tricks. But he puts um, this coin in the ground with his wife as she's buried, and the next evening she comes back to life. Very zombie-like. It's very creepy. Neil Gaiman is very explicit and talking about how, like, dead she smells and looks and tastes, and it's very strange. But she follows him throughout the rest of the book in a weird, protective, but also possessive kind of way. I don't really know how I feel about Laura. We might talk about that later. Yeah. But the rest of the road trip is pretty much Mr. Wednesday, who it is revealed is an aspect of the Norse god Odin, is traveling around America trying to get all these gods in cahoots so they can beat the new gods which you can tell this book was released in 2001 because the technical (laughs) boy looks like a matrix fanboy yes (laughs) he's got the long coat this glasses in the new tv show he vapes which i think is hilarious yeah Um, but there's like the god of media there's the men in black Mr. World, and then, like, all these other guys who have spook names, like Mr. Town and Mr. Stone and all these other guys. They're these gods of these more modern conceptions of what we've accepted in America. Technology, media, that kind of stuff. Several things happen. (laughs) I will try to be brief about this. Shadow is attacked and eventually has to, like, hide out for a while at this funeral home in Cairo where uh, not the one in Egypt with Mr. Jackal and Mr. Ibis who are aspects of Anubis and Toth who are both Egyptian gods and he learns about death there and stories and it's around this point that interspersed in between a lot of this plot is these coming to America and somewhere in America stories which are about either how gods came to America or how they're existing currently Currently, it's not great. It's just not great. <laughs> uh, Shadow, after several random happenstances, finds himself in the town of Lakeside, where Wednesday's off doing whatever the fuck it is Wednesday's doing. He basically says, sit tight, I'll call you when I need you. <laughs> so he spends a lot of time in this town called Lakeside, which becomes intensely relevant at the very end of the book. All throughout this journey across America, it's leading up to what we assume is the climax of the book. This big war between the gods, the old and the new, and only one, two men enter, one man leaves. And then Wednesday dies. He gets shot in the face. And they're all kind of left being like, well, what do we do now? Because Shadow has promised part of his d- initial deal with Wednesday was that if and when Wednesday died, Shadow would hold his vigil. And he's expected to do that in the way Odin died, where he was hung on the world tree with a spear in his side and all that stuff. It's all very Norse. Shadow does this, and he dies and goes through the land of the dead, and he finds out that Wednesday's his dad. (laughs) The Mr. World is not actually a man in black at all that he's um, the Norse god Loki, who his prison inmate in the beginning of the book was a guy named Low-Key Lysmith. This kid ain't slick. <laughs> it all starts to come together that this M- Mr. Wednesday dying and, like, inciting 
this wrath in the old gods was the plan all along. Because Odin, a big thing with him, a big motif that they talk about with a lot of the gods, actually, is the power of sacrifice. And Odin, being a god of war and a god of knowledge and all that stuff, derives power from sacrifice. And Loki derives power from chaos. And what's more chaotic than a war where gods die? This was the whole two-man con they were running, that this is how they're going to be more powerful than everyone else, and they're going to muscle everybody else out of America. Shadow is like, can you cut this shit out? Says, this is a bad land for gods. Everyone, please go home. And then you think that's the end of the book. It's not. He comes to find out because he's been trying to figure out this question about Lakeside and how it has remained so perfect is sticking in his mind during his time there. He learns that a child has gone missing ever, almost every year. And he figures out why that is, and it turns out that there was an old god living in the town who was performing these sacrifices so the town could prosper and be normal. So Shadow deals with that. And on the very end of the book, he meets an aspect of Onan in Iceland And he says something that I always thought was very interesting and that I think might lead into a really good first discussion topic, which is Shadow tries to blame Odin for the things Wednesday did. Because Wednesday's dissipated and Loki is dead, essentially. Mm -hmm. And Odin says, he was me, but I am not him. And while that is a bit trickster, that's really just some tricksy language, I do think it's interesting to think about when we talk about how belief is portrayed in this book because it is a book about belief and about belief in a lot of different things not only like the beliefs of america but belief in america and what that looks like and what that means and i think that might be how we can start to reconcile why mr wednesday was so different from odin if that makes sense yeah because i think the american Wednesday Odin he is a grifter and a trickster and a con man and I think that's like it's not a uniquely American thing but there's like a uniquely American grifter do you know what I'm saying I do know what you're saying because that is something that we see in so many tales of daring do in america like i always think of that one leonardo dicaprio movie catch me if you can right yeah it's a little it's a little like that (laughs) it's a little bit like that like you can't have i feel like that story could only really happen in america because like the idea of america and this is shown in the book a few times it's about reinvention Mm. and grifters reinvent themselves for every new mark that they want to hit in some way shape or form i think that's what wednesday does though because he talks about his favorite two-man con and he says he's he's lamenting because it won't work anymore but you used to go and dress up as a bishop and then go to a jewelry store and then buy the necklace and then your buddy would be dressed up as a cop and he would stop you outside and then he'd bring you back in 
And then there's a bit with some counterfeit money, but basically he'd be like, he's not a bishop and, you know, he's the best counterfeiter ever, so we're going to need that money back. And also, I have to take this necklace for evidence. And then the money's not counterfeit, it's real money. Mm-hmm. And then, so they're, <laughs> they get to keep their $2,000 and the diamond necklace, and then by the time anyone has realized anything's wrong... They're gone. So a big thing with the cons that Wednesday talks about and the ones that he, that him and Loki end up attempting is it's all about inserting yourself as an authority that is designed to not be questioned. And that's a big thing with Loki as Mr. World. Everyone asks them across the whole book, like, who are you? <laughs> as if the, the CIA and the FBI are not like, like agencies with conglomerations of people but as if they're one entity mm-hmm. um which i think is something that is very it's very x-files yeah which I really <laughs> appreciated. that is something i don't think that's uniquely american but i do think that's something i that we see a lot in american fiction mm-hmm. is this this idea that there is some one person running everything yeah behind the scenes yeah i think that's that's a very spy thriller esque thing to have mm-hmm. happen. The it's the king of America. Uh- <laughs> yeah, exactly. At some point, it's not that hard to believe there is a king of America like running everything. Hell, in our lifetimes, we've had <laughs> conspiracy theories proven true. Yeah, that it's like, oh, it's not a theory; it's an actual conspiracy. Yeah, can you just imagine how different it would have been if this book had been written like after Edward Snowden? <laughs> I think just the structure of how we think about government yeah. and spy work in America is, it's all about the men in black. Yeah, I agree. The other interesting thing, I guess, about the concept of being a con or being a grifter that is repeated a lot is that Shadow is continually doing coin tricks, disappearing coins, making coins appear. It's like a thing that calms him down. It's his nervous habit. Yeah. And I think it introduces the concept of misdirection Mm -hmm. into the book. And there's a thing that's in the back of my edition where it includes some journal, online journal entries that Neil Gaiman wrote about the book. And he had a professional magician review of the text to make sure that you know, he was portraying the coin tricks correctly. Because I'm sure that's a very difficult thing to do if you don't know Yeah, if you about can't do coin them tricks. yourself, necessarily. Right. So, in an email conversation they had, the idea that the problem with stage magic in fiction is that the stage magician tells the audience two things. The first being, I will lie to you. And the second being, I will show you miracles, and that fiction really only gets the second part and ignores ignores the lies. So I think in this book in particular, there are miracles, but also the idea of someone is lying to you constantly, the gods, the magician, whoever, and misdirecting you. I think that's very strongly carried out throughout the book and i think wednesday is one of the best at it yeah i agree i remember reading this book for the first time and 
the first reveal we have that things are not all that they appear to be is when Mr. They don't say he's Loki, but when it's revealed that Mr. World is not the real Mr. World that we've been led to believe. And you had a really good comment in our production meeting where the twists in this book, you see them coming like a page or two before the characters do. And reading this book again, or listening to it rather, has been very interesting because you see the framework now. Right. (laughs) Where you're like, oh, that's where that was leading. Like stuff that you don't, if it's really well written and Neil Gaiman's very good at it, where you don't pick up on it the first time because everything is, you're just like, oh, that's kind of odd, but okay. And you, you move on. There's the twist about Lakeside is another good comment. Because there's a whole conversation Shadow has with a woman who lives there where she talks about how that town succeeds and every other town has failed. Mm-hmm. He's just being polite and listening to this person. And because you're in his going through his eyes, he has no reason to think anything else of it. Mm-hmm. So you don't. One of the ways we start to figure that Mr. World is not Mr. World is when, when Shadow is looking into Mr. Town's mind and he hears his voice he thinks it sounds familiar. And in the audiobook I listened to, it was the full cast version for the 10th anniversary they did a few years ago. The voice actor who's, Lo- who's Loki Lysmith in the beginning of the book is the voice actor from Mr. World, but it's hours and hours separated. <laughs> that It's almost like it recreates that same sensation where you're like, oh, I know that voice. I know who that is. Or rather... You know you should know who that is. Mm-hmm. It's little things like that that I think really contribute well to those plot twists. Because another great comment you had is about the climaxes in this book aren't what and where you think they should be. Yeah, I think structurally the book does some really interesting things with subverting traditional narrative structure, which is, you know, you have the rising action, it comes to a climax, and then you have the resolution and that's that's a pretty standard structure there's nothing wrong with that structure but the book builds to the climax and the climax you expect is this battle between the gods and what happens instead is shadow says and right before they start to fight in earnest there's been some skirmishes but they're they're lining up to do the real the real deal the big everybody's gonna you know (laughs) Be victorious or die, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. how, I assume that's how war works, I really have no idea. But, <laughs> but Shadow shows up and is like, okay guys, everybody go home, like it's over, you're done here, we've all been had, just go home. And they do, they believe him, and they leave. And that's the end of that, and I think that's, that's not quite a climax, right? That's, that's a little bit of a letdown. Not not necessarily, like, in a dissatisfactory way, but in a, well, I thought that was going to be something else kind of way. And then Shadow goes back to Lakeside, and in Lakeside, every year, to raise money for the children's hospital, the irony, mm-hmm. there is a clunker, they take the engine block out, and they roll this car onto the man-made lake, in the middle of town, and whenever the ice melts and the car goes through the ice, and if you can get the within five minutes of the time, like, you win prize money 
or whatever and then like the children's hospital keeps the rest of the keeps the rest of the money from the tickets so like you buy a five minute time slot from like late february into into april because <laughs> it's like wisconsin or something it's so cold yeah, it's all in wisconsin like there's this whole epic story about shadow goes out without like real win- winter clothes and he almost freezes to death yeah he almost gets hypothermia and dies which is like that could have happened here this winter so it's really cold it's winter whatever so shadow goes it's like late march at this point he's been in and out of lakeside all winter and he goes and he has this feeling because he bought the lakeside city council minutes from a library book sale which is one of the best plot devices i've ever seen in a book in my life it's so great and he's so bored because he it's so cold and he can't watch television because the new gods keep talking to him through the television and he doesn't like it so you can't watch television so he's so bored he starts to read the lakeside city minutes from like it's they're from like 1875 or something and Every year, for like five years, he notices like every winter a child goes missing and it's in the city council meeting minutes. And he has this thought while he's away. So he comes back to the city and he goes out onto the lake and the ice is starting to get rotten. And it's very dramatic, right? This is the rising mm-hmm. action. He goes out it's and he's a big guy. So it's not, you know, there's this, there's this tension like, will the ice hold him in the weight of the car? And he goes and he opens the trunk of the car and the missing girl is in the trunk of the car. And what he realizes is that this jolly old man who is like the patriarch of this town is one of them, is one of the old gods. And and this is what you're talking about in the summary. And he's been mm-hmm. he's been putting children in the trunks of these cars for years and years and years or whatever they did before cars, you know, back when the town was founded in the 1800s. And then sinking them every winter, and that has brought the prosperity. That sacrifice has brought prosperity to the town. The ice breaks, and Shadow is, he plunges into the lake with the car. You know, his leg is trapped under the car. It doesn't even matter. Like, you could do this a hundred thousand times. This is literally, I've seen this a hundred thousand times. I will never, it will never stop being dramatic. That thing where people are, get trapped under ice. Like, this was literally in Riverdale, right? Like, this literally, we literally just did this. This is not an uncommon trope. But he gets trapped underneath the ice. And he finally gets his hand up through an ice fishing hole. And the person that rescues him is Hinzelman, who is the old god who's been sacrificing these children. And Hinzelman has to save him because he owes Wednesday a debt and he is supposed to keep Shadow safe. There's a big confrontation. Hinzelman ends up, you know, the sheriff of the town walks in an inopportune minute. Here's the whole thing. Henselman throws a hot poker at the sheriff. The sheriff shoots Henselman. Henselman dies. And then the sheriff sets Henselman's house on fire. And I hope his name is Henselman. Please forgive me, readers. Oh, thank God. Um, He sets the house on fire. And then, like, they leave. And then the sheriff is like, I guess I have to go commit suicide now. And then Shadow is like, you don't. And he magically fixes his brain because, like, 
Hinzelman, he was pretty sure that Hinzelman didn't want to be trapped in the town anymore. Like, he was tied to the town so tightly, and he couldn't leave, because he's a god, and he's immortal, and he just, he was done. So part of it is, you know, you kill him, you make his pyre, and then you have to go out in the woods and kill yourself. Like, that's how this apparently works. But but Shadow stops that. Shadow's good at, like, stopping people from doing weird mystical things. Mm-hmm. But that is the actual climax of the book. Uh, it's not the War of the Gods, or there's a bet that gets made between him and Chernabog. Am I saying that one right? Yes. Chernabog. Where Chernabog will join Wednesday, but he gets to smash Wednesday's head in with a hammer. He gets to smash Shadow's head in with a hammer. Oh, I'm sorry. You are correct. He gets to smash the protagonist of the book. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> he gets he gets to smash his head in with a hammer. So Wednesday goes to to have this be done with and, and meet his maker or whatever. And Chernabog, because Wednesday, you know, did, or I'm sorry, I keep doing it, because Shadow did Wednesday's vigil and stopped the war between the gods and kind of fixed things. So Chernabog doesn't actually want to kill Shadow because Shadow's basically fixed everything. So he just kind of bops him gently on the head and sends him on his way and Shadow gets to, gets to live and do what else. We we don't know at the end of the book, but he gets to kind of go on with things. Yeah, the the whole thing about Lakeside that I thought was really interesting is it brings up the ideas that are presented throughout the course of the book in a different context, and that's the idea of sacrifice and what sacrifice does and what it looks like, because that is the one thing that really unites the old gods and the new gods is they require sacrifice mm-hmm. media is the one that talks about it most explicitly because she's the goddess of, of television essentially and shadow asks her like well what wh- what do they sacrifice to you and she says their time sometimes each other <laughs> i always found that to be an interesting through line and it's not just in the explicit stories of the gods it's in a lot of like the different somewhere in america and coming to america stories Mm -hmm. is you can get power but you must give something right there's that symbiotic relationship between god and worshiper that is near universal and weirdly enough i think that's one of the reasons all these gods can kind of coexist in a in the very tenuous way that they do Mm mm-hmm but they all share that that need. I was actually very affected by the conversation they have with Easter in San Francisco, where I think she's in San Francisco. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where she's trying to put on a good face and she's trying to say, well, this is about me and all this other stuff. And Wednesday's like, no, it's not. <laughs> they say your name, but they don't know who you are. There's a very good scene that's a mirror of that in the show where Kristen Chenoweth is Easter and it's all about her having to play nice with all the the Jesuses. Yeah. Because without them, she's nothing. Right. Because that's what her holiday has become. And we kind of get a bit of that with a couple of, of the different characters and what they have sort of attached themselves to, like, 
Mr. Jackal is um, Anubis, the god of the dead, but he is an expert mortician where he takes a slice and eats of the organs of the people he embalms. And that's the kind of sacrifice that he gets. There's this overarching idea that in America, they take what scraps they can. Mm-hmm. And they deal with what they can. Um, like Bilquist, who ab- absorbs her sexual partners, <laughs> literally, um, is uh, a prostitute, essentially. And because that's the only way she can get what she needs to survive in that more metaphorical, mythological way. Mm-hmm. It- it's a story of these towering figures brought low. Like there's this weird sort of offhand comment about how Thor killed himself in the 1930s. Yeah, that's messed up. That's it's real messed up. There's so much so many stories of people who just got so jacked. And a lot of the ones that you see that are the worst more more worse are the people we would quantify as more typically American like like Whiskey Jack who I think is based off an Algonquin figure john chapman who's johnny appleseed like all these people that we could we could consider quintessentially american and they're no better off than anyone else right and that kind of leads to the question of okay well what are the american gods (laughs) i think that's an interesting thing because one of the things that the book suggests i think especially towards the end of the book is that these new gods aren't secure or permanent either because mm-hmm. it talks about there's a guy on the new god side that looks like a railroad baron. And he already looks a little worse for wear. So I think this idea that America is a bad land for gods, that really does have to do with, with that reinvention and that idea that America wasn't, it doesn't have hundreds and hundreds of years of history like some of the European countries. Though, of course, I think the borderlines in Europe are a bit more wibbly-wobbly historically than we really want to, like, than we really acknowledge now, I guess, because we think it's a moot point, but I I don't know that it is. Conception of space, I think, is important when we talk about America, but a thing that we didn't get to talk about in the production meeting that I think is interesting in this context is conception of time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because I remember I had been to England previously when we went a couple years ago, me, my mom, and my dad. My dad had never been. And when you come from a place like Ohio, which is barely 200 years old, and there's pieces of the Roman wall (laughs) in London that's 2,000 years old, it is so weird to conceive of. Mm -hmm. Because our ideas of what is ancient is so different. I think that's something that works against a lot of these old gods that are used to the stability. Like, especially if we think about Mr. Jackal and Mr. Ibis, who came from the Egyptian empire that lasted thousands of years. It's a completely different ball game. And you're right, where I think that does have to do with a lot of the reinvention and the looking for something that's new that is part of American culture. That's something that we see in the story of Salim, who trades lives with a djinn because he just cannot deal with his life anymore. And eventually he's like, wait a minute, I'm in America. I don't have to do this. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm here. I can do what I want. While that is 
it's one of those things that it's good for the consumer, it's bad for business. If you think about the business of worship and sacrifice, you see it all the time. People talk about how fast technology is moving. The way I always encounter it in the degree that I'm looking at is how language and language learning is changing because we are exposed to so much more information in so many varying contexts than we ever used to be. Like our circles are so much wider now in some ways, which doesn't really lend itself well when you're like a kobold trying to keep track of 5,000 people. Like <laughs> that weird swath of the middle, the middle of America that we only really talk about during election season or if there's been a natural disaster. Like this huge chunk of land that is either empty space or those small towns still feels separated from the america we see in like los angeles yeah or the america of new york or 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 things like that an interesting thing that i don't know if it's explored as much in the books it for sure is in the show is the worship of an idea of america in a way yeah and how that idea of america changes depending on where you live in america and your context and how that affects the kinds of sacrifice and gods that could thrive in your area. Yeah, because there's a really, they added a coming to America section to the show that's not in the book that has to do with migrants crossing the southern border of the United States. And I feel like they really had to add that to the show. Mm-hmm. Or, like, it would have been dishonest. I don't know yeah. if, if when this came out, because I, I was, like, 10. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think it was as relevant when this was first published in 2001 as it, as it is now. I don't think you can talk about coming to America and not acknowledge that, like... Yeah, I agree. That this moment we're having around migration across the southern border. But, I mean, I think about that and, like, those sacrifices that are involved in that journey and like even in our in real time in real life like how much you have to give up to cross that border and how terrible and spook showy that has become yeah i agree with that because if i remember that episode correctly it, it introduced us to the idea that there's different aspects of gods in a more explicit way, because they talk about the different... Wednesday mentions this in the book, I think, as well. The different aspects of Jesus, and how there's, like, the Mexican Catholic Jesus that comes with <laughs> the migrants in the show, and he is promptly shot by Border Patrol. In a way that it's, like, it's so sudden in the show, you almost... It's, like, laughter is almost like a reflex, because it's, it's not funny, but you're like, if you think about it too long, you're just kind of like, oh no. But the god they introduce in that episode is a Vulcan, the god of the forge, runs a bullet factory. Oh, where yeah. They, where they sacrifice, like, an employee into these big molten bats of steel in order to stay relevant. And the town around them, Brian Fuller's not a subtle guy. <laughs> But I respect that. I really respect that. I think we talked about this way before the show. We started the show. Like when it first came out of like, there's something to be said to for being heavy handed. Yeah. Because you, sometimes you don't want people to think it's just subtext. Sometimes you just need to make it text. <laughs> but the town is based off of the very white 
supremacist idea of what America is, which is also an ongo- a conversation that, like, if they had omitted it, I would have got it, but there would have been some aspect of dishonesty to it if that wasn't something they addressed. Yeah. And I know we said we weren't going to talk about the show, but I think in acknowledging, like, how the show had to update the the text of the book i think that really does show that america is a bad place for gods because in the 20 years since this book was published they i don't think they really had to rework technical boy from like a conceptual standpoint but they had to rework the entire look of technical boy because elon musk and mark zuckerberg and like the dot-com thing and like all this stuff like had Mm -hmm. to be incorporated now technical boys are like i I, they're gross but i mean they always were but like it's it's so like he vapes and he's got the like really slicked hair and like the the designer track suits and the fancy Uh sneakers but the limo was really the same i think with the changing colors and the doing weird drugs (laughs) a lot of the underlying aspects i think of all the gods are the same I agree that it, it is very telling that they had to update a lot of the things to stay relevant because it's set in the modern day. Yeah. Which is why, like, nobody has cell phones in the text. Nobody really has laptops. Like, nobody does any of that stuff because that kind of stuff just wasn't as ubiquitous as it is now. But yeah, there's something to be said, I think, for... Neil Gaiman talks about this in, in a couple of the interviews, even the ones they included in my edition, where he talks about he kept expecting people to say, how dare you? He He's an Englishman writing about America. And I think that outside perspective is almost necessary when you're talking about something that big. <laughs> yeah. Because every American I know has a different idea of America. Right. It really depends on on where you're on where you're from. Like mm-hmm. my idea of America is deeply informed by where I grew up. Oh yeah, me too. And and that's very different than like someone who grew up in Los Angeles or someone who grew up in Montana or someone who grew up in Boston or someone who God forbid grew up in Florida. <laughs> yeah, I have. I'm in a server for a video game I play, and we're all from diff- all over. And it's so interesting to me because sometimes we'll talk about stuff that's like local to our area and it's like we're all from different fucking countries. Like, right. I don't know. Like, we have one guy who's from Texas and we're like, is Texas real? <laughs> I don't. I, I'm going to be honest on the show. I don't really trust the desert. I don't. <laughs> you know how in Welcome to Night Vale there's a group of people who don't really think that mountains are real and that mountains are a conspiracy theory? I'm kind yeah. of like that with deserts. I'm like, I don't think that's really a thing, yeah. you guys. I've only ever been to the Las Vegas airport, so like, they could have, <laughs> that could be a thing that's not actually a thing. But yeah, it, it's so, because it's so weird when you think about, like, where you're from and your conception of the world, like, Especially us being so close to, like, the Appalachian Mountains, which is so environmentally, so fundamentally different from something like the desert. Right. (laughs) Right. And I grew up really close to Mm -hmm. the Appalachian Mountains. Like, right there. You could sneeze your way (laughs) in there. Like, I technically... This is one of those weird things. I technically qualify. I'm white, just straight up. There's no, that, that's what I am. But I technically qualify for a minority scholarship 
because I am Appalachian white, which is a historically, economically disadvantaged, you know, region. And I don't know, it's it's really strange. And that comes with its its own set of of baggage. <laughs> yeah. There there's a very pr- particular intersection of race and class in that conversation. Yeah, it's it comes with all, like I don't even like a lot of the time I'm like I don't really want to deal with this part of my identity thing. <laughs> <laughs> like that it's 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 a really heavy thing, but th- that's a very very I think that's a that is a super hyper specific American identity. Mhm too i mean and and i'm sure like there are all kinds of hyper specific identities in america i'm sure portland has it comes to mind because portland's weird right it's just i'm sure portland has a lot of really specific cultural identities because i feel like particular communities focus in certain areas so like certain cities are known for like their lgbtq history and some cities are known for their civil rights history and some cities are known for various other things so i mean it's because america's so big i feel like you kind of get this fracturing almost kaleidoscope i don't know what the right word is kaleidoscopic sounds like a good a good way to think about it because they're i think the point we're trying to inch towards (laughs) over the course of this conversation is there is no one america Yes, there we go. <laughs> there, there is no one America, and I think Chernabog mentioned no, not Chernabog. Uh, Mad Sweeney talks about you know the King of America, blah blah blah. I'm like, there is no King of America because it's first of all too dang big, it's too <laughs> big. It's like how I don't understand how J.K. Rowling thinks we'd have one school of magic. Yeah, <laughs> it's too big. You really think wizard kids from Texas are gonna go to wizard kids from Boston? No, no unacceptable <laughs> it's like the school of the, the the school of rock song about america being a melting pot or a quilt or any of the other patchwork of metaphors that are always brought up when we talk about these kind of things there's a grain of truth in that yeah one of the things that i think gives the gods trouble is that multiplicity but it is also something that allows them to come to this new place whether they wanted to or not. <laughs> yeah, that's the other idea that's through this book. There's something... Shadow is trying to comfort Wednesday. And he says, you're a god. It's a good thing to be a god. And Wednesday looks at him and says, is it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was such a moment, you know, where you're like, oh. Because I think, you know, as as mere mortals on this plane... You know, we we look at the powers that gods have and the immortality that gods have, and we're like, oh, that's nifty. I would like that. But then, like, the reality of the situation is that these gods are bound to a place that doesn't want them anymore. Their powers are failing, and they can't die. So it's not a good thing to be a god. And I think Shadow realizes that at the end of the book, that he's happy just being a man. Yeah, I think there's there's a really good quote. It's like at the very end of the battle where it's like, I'd rather be a man than a god because it doesn't matter if anyone believes in us. We'll just keep on going. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and while that is kind of, it's funny, it's one of those things that I think it's the payoff to that moment with Mr. Wednesday mm-hmm. where you realize that well, maybe being ordinary is, is okay. 
and maybe be not being in charge even in the minimal way that these guys are in charge of things like they all have sort of these arenas of power that they try to cling to through their ordinary jobs maybe that's not all it's cracked up to be right and that is definitely brought home in the final lakeside scenes i think where it's like the cobalt just hinselman just it wants to be done Mm -hmm. and in a weird way like he wants to go on and he's he has done everything he can to go on but also he just wants it to end and those competing desires are so interesting to me yeah i think that american gods as a novel is a story about the interplay of divinity and belief and what makes something divine and how that is something that is it's not simple and it's really hard to kind of pin down and i think it means something different even for all the gods and some of them can handle it and some of them can't like they talk about thor who committed suicide and horus who's the god of the sky who's gone insane right from staying as a hawk and like living off roadkill mad sweeney who's a foul-mouthed trunk who also dies because that's one of the quotes i think has stuck with me the longest is wednesday talks about when gods die they die alone i've never i i still don't think can really pin down why that affects me so much but I think that is something that culturally, across a lot of cultures, is something that's a bit of a touchstone, is the whole idea of being remembered after you die. And that's something that in some way keeps you alive, even if it's only in someone else's belief in a weird tangential way, but just like their memory of you. And that's what these gods lose when they die is no one remembers them like there's that one coming to america story where they talk about the people who with the mammoth god who crossed the bering strait and how they destroyed the people by destroying no they destroyed the god by destroying his people right yeah they because they absorbed the other the tribe that brought that mammoth god over got absorbed through the raiding and pillaging process by another tribe and that tribe kicked their shrine down the hill and that was the end of that and it was very like some other parts of the book that's very anticlimactic right there's no nobody got struck by a lightning bolt no one got cursed for forever like it was just over yeah i think that that aspect of their existence that's explored throughout the book is what makes so many of the gods' tragic figures, which is something that is very mythological. Right. <laughs> Myths are all about that tragedy. Like, Mad Sweeney, they really play this up in the show, but Mad Sweeney's whole life is a tragedy. Oh, yeah. Whiskey Jack and John Chapman, who are just sort of these culture heroes that are stuck in between a lot of states. They can't go anywhere or do much easter who's living off scraps the fact that she's essentially like the face of a brand for what her holiday used to be and all these people who are trapped they're all trapped in some way or another in a way that they can't use the reinvention that mortals can that shadow even employs throughout the book because he starts as this convict and convict in the end he's a free man who finally learns to just take the coins out of the air The last thing I want to talk about is a scene that happens uh, when Shadow is being, when he has his soul weighed against a feather by Mr. Anubis. Or not Mr. Anubis, Mr. Jackal, who is Anubis. (laughs) Um, And Mr. Ibis, throughout the course of this, 
book has been tasked with chronicling short biographies of people who brought beings with them to America. Like, it's implied that he's the author of the Coming to America stories. Um, there's a moment where Shadow has to be revived by Easter and is being returned to life. And um, I don't remember exactly what Shadow says, but he basically is like, well, how how did you know I was going to believe? And Mr. Ibis looks to him and says, it never mattered if you believed in us, we believe in you. And I think that's an interesting microcosm of a different interpretation of the symbiotic relationship between deities and believers that doesn't get explored as often because it requires a different kind of sacrifice on the part of a god which is not as sexy no <laughs> as, um, as whole battlefields being like i i dedicate this death to odin but it's is a good wrap-up for the relationship all the gods have with their worshippers that none of them really own to until that moment. In, in, and that's that the heroes, the people who bring them places, and the people who keep them alive are just ordinary people that function on their deity's belief in them just as much as their deity requires from them. And that's always stuck with me. All right, robots, that's going to wrap us up for this um, episode of Remedial Studies on Neil Gaiman's American Gods. We hope you enjoyed taking this very twisty and turny road trip across America with us. If you would like to continue to join us for the next few weeks... Um, we're going to be uh, continuing in a weird tangential way. The Neil Gaiman train, we're going to read Good Omens by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman for next episode. That's two weeks from today. And then after that, we are going to be reading this book that Hannah has hyped to me for years and years, <laughs> Night Watch, which is the next book in our remedial read-along in the City Watch series of Discworld books. Um, if you would like to get in touch with us on any of our various and sundry social medias, Hannah can tell you how to do that. I might be able to tell you how to do that. <laughs> you can <laughs> you can reach us on Twitter at Remedial Studies. You can reach us on Tumblr at the URL remedialstudiespodcast.tumblr.com. You can reach us via email. That's remedialstudiespodcast at gmail.com. And you can reach us on Instagram at Remedial Studies. So come yell at us on Twitter or uh, I occasionally post what I'm reading in our Instagram stories. Rachel sometimes does posts on Instagram. Twitter is a lot of random thoughts. <laughs> yeah, Twitter is like, I have my phone out and it's 3am and I'm logged into the podcast feed. Have my thoughts. Like, that's a lot of what the Twitter is for me. Yeah, the uh, Twitter is me still being salty about <laughs> Avengers Infinity War. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> still to this day. Still so petty and upset oh, about it. I have thoughts. But that's for another episode, I think. I, perhaps. <laughs> But, uh, what is it that you always say? Oh, I always say, I say, I say this sometimes. I have not been consistent. It starts now. 
You will not see us and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time, robots. Bye, robots.